Episodes of The Shadow Traps have been coming out at slightly inconsistent dates recently. This isn't due to the hidden hand of Thomas Edison, at least I hope not, but some of the more mundane realities of life. And while we wait for the next full-length episode, I thought I would fill the space with a short digression. The story of Le Prince I've been telling over these last few weeks sometimes seems in danger of losing sight of Le Prince the person himself as we look at everything from Edward Mybridge to the transit of Venus to Ida Fusicons. But this is done on purpose as the project is meant to be a digressive, discursive journey. However, I do leave aside many topics that would be interesting to follow up but that might take us too far away from Le Prince for too long. For this episode though, I thought I'd briefly play around with topics that seemed to spring from the last episode about Le Prince's work on cycloramas, specifically the first of the three cycloramas he was thought to have worked on, entitled The Battle of Shiloh. The cycloramas creator, Theophile Poirpo, who thoroughly researched his panoramas, interviewed some of the battle's survivors and his artists, recreated 2,000 individual faces of the combatants from their carte de visite photographs. I wonder exactly how those faces were used. Were all the photographs of soldiers who had survived the battle, or were some of them faces of those who had perished at the Battle of Shiloh in 1861? And if so, how were they used? Could a relative or friend go and see their loved one in action in the moments before they were killed? Or would they actually see them dead, a corpse lying amidst the clouds of shot powder that wreathed the scene? As we mentioned in the last episode, the cyclorama did inevitably include dead and wounded soldiers, although it stopped far short of the actual carnage of this most vicious of battles. And this was a particularly brutal engagement, where wounded soldiers crawled to a nearby pond and, as they washed and drank there, turned the water red. The pond became known as Bloody Pond as a result. Bearing that in mind, the Battle of Shiloh cyclorama was a relatively tame piece. How did Paul Poe and Le Prince, veterans of the brutal Franco-Prussian War, view the work? Was there ambivalence about producing a sanitised depiction of a brutal battle that was meant to educate, but also and especially to entertain visitors? And what part did media and technology such as photography and panoramas play in the public's understanding of armed conflict? More specifically, did phenomena such as panoramas and photography alter subsequent depictions of war? And did they actually alter war itself? The Shadow Traps, Episode 19, and Why Would the Sun Deceive, or The Mute Testimony of the Picture. It was believed from the beginning that the camera did not lie. 
It was discovered quite quickly by a few that this was not entirely the case, but for many people a photograph contained an inherent truth. It was a sun painting directly onto a surface, and why would the sun deceive? With painting, the artist recorded what they saw as best they could, remaining, despite their talent, an imperfect intermediary. But with a photograph, the light from the subject itself was fixed onto a plate. No artist interpreted or reconstructed it. The image impressed itself directly onto the surface to become a picture. Or, as Henry Fox Talbot, inventor of the colour type, put it, it is not the artist who makes the picture, but the picture which makes itself. And Talbot, in his book on photography entitled The Pencil of Nature, showed incredible foresight when he proposed that photographic records of a person's valuables and legal documents might be used, if these things were stolen, in court where the mute testimony of the picture would be deployed against the thief. And with ideas like that, all based on the accuracy of a photograph, came, understandably, a great faith in the images recorded by photography. We see how this was used and taken beyond any aesthetic concerns in many ways very early on in photography's history. For example, around 1843-1844, the Belgian police began photographing criminals for their records. The practice quickly caught on and in 1855 there was an interesting example of its use when Colonel Gilbert Hogg, a police chief constable in Wolverhampton, England, found a daguerreotype of a known con artist named Alice Gray amongst her abandoned belongings and sent it to the photographer Oscar Raylander who made a colour type of it and printed 20 copies which were then distributed to police stations across the country. The result of this was that Gray was identified as the perpetrator of several more deceptions than was at first thought, stretching back five years and actually led to her arrest and to her successful prosecution. And by the way, did you recognise the name Oscar Raylander, the photographer who made the copies of Alice Gray's daguerreotype? This is the second time he's appeared in our story. The first was when he was quoted suggesting a multi-camera setup that anticipated Edward Mybridge's work. Oscar Raylander was an enigmatic pioneer of composite photography who collaborated with Charles Darwin on his book on the expression of the emotions in man and animals, taught the great portrait photographer Julia Cameron and was so influential in the championing of photography as a creative force, in fact he called it the handmaiden of art, that he has been called the father of art photography. Interestingly, he also set up many of his photographic scenes to incorporate an implied narrative of sorts another example of static media straining at its limits, waiting for the ability to come to life and move. And now, here he is, helping to solve a crime. But all this might be a, a digression too far, so let's return to the authority of the photograph's image. For as Walter Benjamin would write, photography made it possible, for the first time, to preserve permanent and unmistakable traces of a human being. And if the work of photographers like William Mumler and William Hope were to be believed, 
these human beings need not be alive, but could be existing happily, or not so happily, on other planes of existence. For one byproduct of this belief in photography was a susceptibility to spiritualism, which seems to have developed alongside techniques such as producing multiple exposures and composite photography that were essential to spirit photography, where the opaque deceased hovered and posed behind the living. The whole genre, a darkly riveting example of deception through photography and under cover of science. Also, the general recognition of photography as capturing life realistically posed a threat, or at least a challenge, to artists. If the camera could capture reality more accurately than a painter, what was there left for a painter to do? This question helped lead people towards Impressionism, Expressionism, Surrealism, etc., where what was left to paint was below and beyond the surface of what was merely seen. And what about portrayals of war? Had the painting of battle scenes in the past been accurate? Or had they succumbed to glamorisation? And if the latter had been the case, could war artists still get away with that when photographs started coming back from the front showing a far less glamorous reality? Did war artists alter their approaches to the work in any way? And if photography helped bring home the realities of war in a way that painting hadn't, would the realities of war shatter any romantic notions of conflict? But it's a flip side of these questions I find more interesting. Not about the truth that photography brought, but the ways in which it could enhance a deception because of the authority it possessed at the time. Photographs projected through magic lantern slides onto the canvas of the cycloramas were used as guides for the artists. It made their work more realistic, and this was promoted as part of the cycloramas' attraction. Photography, therefore, informed the work, but the actual images could still be altered and manipulated. Figures could be placed anywhere on the canvas that the artists or manager wanted. The final images could be modified however the artists or manager wanted, and they still carried some of the authority of photography. Did the more truthful technology therefore tell the better lie? And did Le Prince ponder any of this in the hours that he spent looking at, thinking about and working on the Battle of Shiloh? This came to mind because of a more recent written work by Guy Debord called The Society of the Spectacle, first published in 1967, but which seemed to come back into prominence in the wake of the 2003 Iraq War, in which rolling media coverage of a conflict that seemed to be fought in large part at one remove, in control rooms and with missiles and drones and cameras, desensitised large swathes of the public and turned war into a kind of video game simulation. Dubois had explored the role of the image in society, writing that all that was once directly lived has become mere representation. In fact, the society of the spectacle begins with an observation that could have been written in and about the 19th century. 
in societies dominated by modern conditions of production, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. Modern conditions of production made me think, for example, of the industrial art with its proliferations of copies increasingly divorced from the originals that Ruskin and his ilk were so concerned about in the 19th century. De Boer's work, I feel, is in very small part about the struggle to absorb new technologies. There is tectonic friction between what is newly possible and what is familiar, but this has always been the case, and so it must have been in the age of the panorama. And I made this connection between De Boer and the Prince initially only because the word spectacle is in the title of De Boer's book, which is a word used again and again to describe panoramas. And while panoramas in the 1880s were not new, I would suggest that photographically enhanced cycloramas of the Franco-Prussian civil wars were. And I think it's useful to consider the effect that such media might have had on society and to at least imagine how much Le Prince might have thought about this and how those thoughts might have formed his ideas for film later on. And I think it's useful to consider these things now, at a point in the story where Le Prince's cameras and films do not yet exist, to work within the context without the subject, if you like. Because this is the order in which Le Prince lived all this. His cameras and films emerged out of these experiences. So let us spend time wandering around the cycloramas of the early 80s and imagine how they might have spoken to Le Prince. And remember, the idea of representations of war through film was something that Le Prince would think about, as Lizzie wrote in her memoirs. I remember some almost solemn thoughts he had on the effects his invention was destined to bring about, and the changes that would follow its adoption by many nations. He believed that moving pictures would prove more potent than diplomacy in bringing nations into closer touch and that as a peace propaganda it was without a rival. What mother who has watched a realistic reproduction by camera of a battlefield in action would see her son become feed for cannon in an unnecessary war? This short episode began with the intention of being just a short digression to provide a bridge episode of The Shadow Traps while a full-length one was prepared for next week. However, it seems to have developed a point along the way. Le Prince's passion for his work on film might have been fueled in part by an excitement that came from having such a keen and refined sense already of what its future could be. And I'm not just talking about the consideration of its potential as a peace propaganda or the deeper philosophical issues around film. I'm also talking about the logistics of film, the commercial potential, the best ways to present it. If cycloarmor canvases were motionless films, the cycloarmor buildings themselves were proto-cinemas with their plush velvet seats and comfortable bathrooms, 
their tickets and refreshments and programs for each event that typically included a list of those who worked on its production and which called to mind the end credits of a movie. Le Prince's experiences with cycloramas would have given him a sense of film's potential as a social event. And so he was, and would eventually be conscious of being, an end user of this thing called film, years before the thing itself even existed. Well, now there's a thought. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or to support it in any way, please do go to the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.